0: Well, last week we began our final section in the book of Amos, which was starting off a series of visions that the Lord gave to Amos about a coming judgment on Israel. Now, after the first uh, six chapters of this book, which were numerous sermons and prophecies and warnings about Israel's behavior and what was coming on Israel, all of that went ignored by this kingdom. And so God is finally fed up. And so he began showing Amos these visions of Israel's future destruction by the way of these catastrophic events and disasters. And while Amos was also himself hostile to the culture of Israel and all its greed and depravity and violence, even he began to weep in horror as God showed him these first two visions of what Israel deserved, which were a plague of locusts and a fire that was so hot it would burn up the sea just like it would the land. But in both cases, Amos tearfully begs God, like Moses did for Israel, begs God to relent from bringing disaster on this people, a people who so obviously needed to be judged. And here's the amazing thing. God, without hesitation, said this judgment will not happen. His heart is so disposed towards sinners that even in their vilest moments, if they would only turn, if they would only have a righteous intercessor, his desire is to forgive them and to restore them. And so God says to Amos of these terrible threats, again, that Israel deserves, because you prayed, it's not going to happen. But in the third vision, God measures the city. Presumably, after Israel's been spared twice over, he measures the city, specifically the city wall, with a plumb line. That is like an ancient level. And he finds Israel to be hopelessly crooked on every conceivable level. Morally, spiritually, financially, physically, sexually, all those things. Now, after these close calls... That Israel's had after these brushes with judgment you think that Israel might wise up and listen to God through his prophet Amos but how does chapter 7 end it ends with Amaziah the high priest who is in Bethel, which is the, the, the religious capital of northern Israel. And it ends with Jeroboam II, who is the king in Samaria. Both of these men, symbolic and emblematic of the, the highest power of the land, religious and political power, they together denounce Amos. They denounce the message and therefore ignore the Lord God altogether. In fact, they go on not only to ignore that, but then they go to make these wild accusations of Amos saying that he is just about um, opportunism, that he's just about profiteering off of his message. He just wants to scare people into giving him donations. But Amos quickly corrects them. He says he's not a trained orator. He's not a prophet. Nobody in his family has ever been a prophet. All he does is simple farm work. And most importantly, uh, it's, that's how he sustains himself, but most importantly, it's not his word that he's uh, coming to announce, it's God's word. That's what we've heard all throughout this book, this is the declaration of the Lord, that's what we hear tonight, this is the declaration of the Lord, this is not Amos' words, it's God's words to a wayward people. And so now, folks, the situation is not looking good for Israel. They are corrupted in every way, starting from the top, going all the way down. The Lord had intended for this country, for this nation, for this set-aside people to be a holy kingdom of priests that reflect God's glory and goodness to the nations around them, but they've become an unjust tyranny of sex and money and power. And because that's the case, the Lord reveals to Amos this fourth vision of five visions, a fourth vision of judgment of how Israel is like a basket of ripe summer fruit. Now that doesn't sound like it's that bad of a judgment, but as we get into the text tonight, we'll see the connotation that the Lord has. So let's look at these first three verses together. Amos chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. Now last week I mentioned how the first and second visions were kind of mirrors of each other. They had different plagues of locust and fire, but the sentence structure was the same. They were both these overwhelming threats of destruction on Israel that were both disarmed by Amos' desperate prayers. Now, this week we see um, uh, in, in, in the vision number four a mirror image of, of the third vision. So, just like the first two mirrored each other, so do these second two mirror each other. And both include these things God showing Amos a symbol. Asking Amos if he understands what he, he sees, Amos confirming that he does, and then God interpreting what that means for Israel. So, for instance, in the third vision, God shows Amos a plumb line, which is a, it's just an ancient level where you would have a weighted thing and a string attached to it for you to check if something was um, level vertically. So God, he sees in this vision, is dangling this atop from a city wall and tells Amos how it reveals, this crooked wall, how Israel doesn't measure up, so to speak. They are, just as their walls are crooked, so are their hearts crooked. That's the point of the third vision. And now in this fourth vision, God shows Amos another common object in Israel. He shows them a basket of ripe summer fruit. and he asks Amos, do you see what this is? Amos says, yes, Lord, it's a basket basket of, of ripe summer fruit. And then he replies to Amos. He says, yes, that's it. He says, and this means the end has come for my people, Israel. Now, here is where we have to rely on the wisdom of people that understand the original language better than us because there's some kind of terrifying wordplay going on here. The Hebrew word for ripe And summer and end are all connected. They share all the same letters. And so the wordplay, the idea that's being communicated here is God is saying just like it is the end of summer and that has come, so has the end of Israel's life come. Both the fruit of judgment, both the fruit and the judgment rather are ripe for the picking. That's the idea. That Amos is is hearing here so whereas the first two visions Amos was able to see a terrible thing was waiting on Israel and he was able to desperately tearfully pray God don't let it be so to avert those things now in these third and fourth visions God says he will not be deterred these things are going to happen no matter what God is going to bring justice on these evil people And the third vision, God said, the temples of Israel will be deserted. The king will be destroyed by a sword. And now he says uh, that idolatry, their idolatry will become weeping until all that's left of Israel is dead bodies left there in silence. Now, Amaziah, the high priest, and Jeroboam, the king, might have thought previously in the last passage they could rebuke Amos away, but all this causes Amos to do is double down on God's oracle, on God's declaration. Israel is going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed so thoroughly that the last thing you hear in the land of Israel is a shattering scream and a gasp of horror before All things go silent, and the whole land is covered with bloated, rotting corpses of unrepentant idolaters. This is the stuff that the horror movie makers couldn't come up with. The most terrifying image you can imagine. The bad fruit of Israel is going to be stomped into the ground beyond recognition till it's just a bunch of dead mush at the feet of a holy God. This is the end of Israel. And so from here in verses 4 through 14, Amos makes, wants to make so certain these people understand why this judgment is coming. They have a short memory. They're like us in that way, that they have a very short-term historical memory. Even if the high priest and king wanted to plug their ears... Amos is not about to be silenced. And so in verses 4 through 6, he reveals why the Lord is doing this. It's because these people, especially the king and the priesthood, in other words, the most important nobles of society, how they are guilty of things like greed and extortion and economic oppression. God essentially says, listen up, those of you who love to trample on the needy. And, and, uh, and, and send away the poor of the land. Only asking when the new moon and the Sabbath, in other words, asking when worship is over so you can get back to the marketplace. So you can go back to overcharging people for using uh, uh, unbalanced scales to rob people. The kind of spirit that says, we'll take all their money, we'll sell these people into debt slavery over some missed payment on sandals. And, and when they're starving, we'll sell them chaff back to them to eat. Not wheat, we'll sell them the chaff. God is so outraged, Christian, by this kind of thinking and living that he is about to unleash all sorts of cosmological terrors on Israel that should make our hair stand on end. Christians, we need to pay serious and close attention to this idea that comes all throughout the Bible as Christians, especially us that live in this very blessed and wealthy nation. So often the church can end up with dollar signs in its eyes before the cross of Jesus Christ in its eyes. We get lured into the godless thinking of the world that what's really important is money and power and influence and infrastructure. But all over the scriptures, Old Testament and new, God roars against this kind of greed. Isaiah, in his first chapter, denounces Israel like Amos did for their over-the-top worship. Their their national cathedral was beautiful. It had all the art and gold, and they sang all the beautiful songs, the best choir in all the Middle East, and and yet they neglected the widows and the orphans and the foreigners, and God was about to send them into desolation for that. As I read this morning, James, the brother of our Lord, says true religion is not the pomposity. It's not the pomp and circumstance of wearing flowing dresses with gold threads and having big, uh, 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 big choirs and, 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 and programs. And it's not that. It's, it is loving the same people that we sent money to today. The orphans, the widows, the people that can't take care of themselves, the people that society thinks are just worthless. That's what true religion is, to look after those people in the name of Jesus Christ alone. While James also warns the rich later in that chapter, they will howl in misery because just like the kings and the priests of ancient Israel, they underpay or altogether rob the servants that they hire to do all their work. Now, I don't want to scare anybody, but we're only about a month away from Christmas, so start your shopping now, folks. It's a terrifying thought, but our passage tonight got me thinking about a well-known Christmas story. I'm sure we all know if if I if I had to give a pop quiz right now, I'm sure everybody could ace telling the major plot points of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, from the I think 1860s, 1865, something like that. A little short novella he wrote. You know, it's one of the most retold stories in, in the in the Western world, I'm sure. And so I'm not going to rehash it. But you know that the main character is a greedy, stingy, and as Charles Dickens so eloquently wrote, covetous old sinner named Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, he is, he is 19th century. He's Victorian London's cruelest moneylender because he has more money than he knows what to do with, but he wouldn't give a coin to a beggar if, he, you know, he, if his life depended on it. And so early in the story, two Christian men come to him on Christmas Eve and ask for donations for the poor. And he, he scoffs and he says... Well, they should get a job in a poorhouse, or go to a prison, or better yet, they should die and decrease the surplus population. It's truly cruel stuff. And I've always been struck by what happens just a few hours later in that story. Scrooge is getting ready to go to bed on Christmas Eve, and the ghost of his old partner, Jacob Marley, appears to him and warns him, if he doesn't repent of his ways, he will be damned for all eternity. And what's extra terrifying about that scene is that Marley is wrapped in all these heavy chains. that are attached to the money boxes he hoarded all throughout life. And Scrooge tries to comfort him by saying, oh, but you're a brilliant businessman. And maybe you remember this line. I think it's powerful. Marley screams back at him, mankind was my business. Common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence. Those were all my business. Folks, I think Jacob Marley picks up on what Amos says pretty clearly here. The business of God's people is not money or stuff or power. It is the salvation of souls and care for the image bearers of God. That's why the church exists. To give glory to Jesus and to love those whom he loves that's where our concern should lie and folks at its christianity 101 i'm gonna read for you a couple quotes from church history and i want you to figure out if you if you know who said it so i'm going to read four quotes tell me if you think you know who said it first one any church that does not exist to take the side of the poor to denounce injustice and to uphold righteousness is a church that has no right to exist. Who said it? Charles Spurgeon. How about this one? God is indeed no respecter of persons, but it is not without cause that God takes a more special care of the poor than others since they are the most exposed to injuries and injustice and violence. Who said it? Anybody ever heard of John Calvin? What about this? Wealth is unstable. We might suppose that the people of Israel are rich since they have the promises of the patriarchs. However, they have become poor because they sin against God and against one another. Basil the Great. One of the early church leaders that helped define for us so strongly what the Trinity is. Here's another one. The Bible tells us we are to do uh, to do good. Psalm 37 tells us this. For God loves the just. To do good means to treat people equitably. It means caring for the rights and the needs of the poor, for immigrants, widows, orphans. Biblical justice is not an optional characteristic of those who love or who the Lord loves and delights in. That's Tim Keller. Folks, I'm not quoting partisan politics here, we are simply talking about what biblical righteousness and justice is. What the Bible defines that is for God's people, that we love and care for all those who are in need and worship the Lord alone. That's what true religion is. Israel refused to do it. And many in the church today are utterly apathetic to this. But to love and follow Jesus looks like, in practice, us loving and caring for others just like Jesus loved and cared for us when we were nothing, when we were nobody. Friends, don't let social media, don't let cable news, don't let nationality, don't let culture define how you treat others. Let the word of God and his Holy Spirit in you define how you treat other people. The Israel refused to humble themselves before the Lord. And so in verses 7 and 8, we read, The Lord swears by Jacob, Jacob being a stand-in for the name Israel. The Lord swears by Jacob's stubborn pride that he will shake them to pieces with earthquakes, that he will submerge them and wash them away with the rising and surging rivers more powerful than the Nile. The punishment that God unleashes on the world in the flood that we read about in the early chapters of Genesis, that's the exact kind of language that he is about to use, or that he's using here that he wants to unleash on his wicked and greedy and proud kingdom that he called to be his own. Those who refuse to love God and serve one another, he will, just like he once did to the world, to decreate it. You know, when God created the world, he spoke, and land came out of water; life came forward. And then, when he, when it was uh, just so s- submerged in sin, he took back that word of blessing, and the waters of chaos and death came flooding back over. It was symbolically decreating the world. That's what he's going to do to Israel, who will not repent. That's verse seven, eight. Let's look at verses nine and ten. Does God relent here? No, he doubles down. Their feasts, in other words, their big celebrations, their versions of Christmas and Easter are going to become opportunities for mourning. Their great triumphant songs about their political might, about their military might, are going to become lamentations about how weak they are. The sun will set at noon. When it's supposed to be highest in the sky is when it will be submerging beneath the horizon never to rise again in other words Israel God's beloved and chosen and elect people is going to be a dark and drowned and destroyed nation who can only grieve by wearing their sackcloth and shaving their heads the punishment that God unleashed on on Egypt rather where they were um in where where they were in the dark, where they were uh, just overtaken by all these plagues, where they were crying out for the death of their firstborn sons, God is about to unleash that on Israel. God delivered Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians, and Israel took that freedom and love and blessing and turned into the Egyptians themselves. And God's about to do with them what He did with the Egyptians, and Let's look now at verses 11 through 14. Is the Lord relenting yet? Again, he doesn't relent. He triples down, in fact, with yet another declaration. And folks, this is the worst one of all. Because he says a famine is about to strike the land. Now in his first vision he said locusts will come and they'll eat up everything. They'll eat the horses' hay, they'll eat the, the food and the fruit that the Israelites eat. Every animal will starve. Maybe some of the rich and powerful will have enough stuff in the cupboards, enough stuff in the pantry that they can survive, but most people will die. He says that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a spirit or a physical famine, but now a different kind of famine, not a famine of bread or water, but of hearing and understanding God's word. Now, the reason why this is so severe is because I think this shows us, again, that just like the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart to where Pharaoh could do no otherwise than sin against the Lord, so is he about to harden the hearts of Israel so that they can't possibly repent. See, this is interesting. If you read the book of uh, Exodus... And you see how the language of Exodus works when, when Moses goes to Pharaoh. It says in the first few times that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It doesn't say that God does anything. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But then it gets to a point where God starts doing the hardening. Because when Pharaoh just shows no sign of remorse or repentance, God, will say, God says in a final word of judgment, you'll never be able to repent. That's the greatest condemnation. It's the greatest uh, disaster that can be brought, that they are unable, listen, you can survive a flood, you can survive a famine sometimes, you can survive the darkness, you cannot survive being unforgiven by God. And he says he'll make sure that you'll go through your whole life unforgiven in this passage. Just like Pharaoh's heart was hardened by Uh, the Lord so he couldn't hear the word through Moses now the people of Israel will have their hearts so hardened that they will not be able to hear the word of Amos and this is scary folks verse 12 says they will travel to the ends of the world they'll go from sea to shining sea they'll go from the north to the east to the south the west they'll go all over the globe looking for the wisdom and word of the Lord they once took for granted and they will not find it And verse 13 says, the young and powerful and beautiful women and men, in other words, the people that we prize so much, the celebrities, the ones that are in all the the cool superhero movies and have tons of money and influence and go speak before Congress and the United Nations, they will be the same people that go looking for a drop of wisdom and, and die and faint in the wilderness. Nobody will escape this judgment. They'll be just like the rich man in Luke's gospel in chapter 16, who dies and goes to hell. And he has a vision where he can see in this, in this bifurcated hell, this bifurcated uh, uh, underworld, where there is a section for the unrighteous dead and a section for the righteous dead. He's in darkness and peril and danger and, 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 and flame, and, he's, and he sees across the chasm. There stands Abraham with this poor man, Lazarus. And he says, Abraham, send me Lazarus. With just a drop of water on his finger for my tongue. Just a drop of water. And Abraham denies that. He gave no water to anybody with all his miserable wealth. And now he'll get none. But this is even worse. He begs Abraham then. If this he can't escape his faith, then go and warn my brothers. Send someone from the dead to go to them. Send someone like Jacob Marley. The ebenezer scrooge to go and warn them of the misery that's coming to them and you remember what abraham says if they don't listen to moses or amos they won't listen if someone to were to rise from the dead if jesus christ himself rose from the dead they would not believe it see folks god's judgment may come on his people even on his church in america today that they won't or can't hear and respond in obedience. If they continue chasing after the idols of influence and power and politicking and money and all that stuff, it may just be where God says, fine, have your own way. Worship your own gods made in your image. Suppress my truth. I will let you have your way. May we never so insist on our own preferences, our own politics, that we neglect reverence of God and righteousness with one another. Because he may just let us languish under the false gods we love so much. Amos concludes his chapter tonight in verse 14 by saying that one day they will in Israel swear by the false gods of the northern city of Dan. And they'll swear by all their pagan culture and Beersheba. But because they're swearing by false gods and, 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 and false ways of living, they will fall never to rise again. Even when disaster is upon them, they won't be able to turn to the Lord and call on his name. Now, folks, this is challenging stuff, no doubt. God calls us to worship Him alone, and worshiping him alone also calls us to radically love and serve one another, even our enemies. Goodness gracious. It's hard enough just loving and liking each other, but our own enemies? Worship and serving only ourselves, we see from Amos, as well through all the scriptures, leads not only to physical death, it leads to spiritual death too. There will be a point of no return for those who can repent now, but refuse not to. We need to be careful, church, especially as a church in a very prosperous time in human history and in a very pos- prosperous place. That we don't let pride and our church traditions and our cultural heritage or any of our business practices think that we are Untouchable before God. Israel found out just how touchable they were. So, how do we respond as Christians to this disastrous word to the ancient Israelites? Well, I think the author of Hebrews, who himself quotes a psalm, expresses how we can be different in hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 through 14 the psalmist writes this but he says therefore as the holy spirit says see david may have written it first or david may have written it but the holy spirit wrote it first he says today if you hear his voice today maybe you haven't heard it up until this point but if today you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah or Massa, Do not harden your hearts in rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me and they saw my works for 40 years and still rebel. Don't do that. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my way. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. They will not go into the promised land, and they will not go into Abraham's bosom. Folks, the author of Hebrews says, do not be these people. The Holy Spirit today tells you, don't be these people. Jacob Marley is at the door of our hearts right now. The Holy Spirit is at the door of our hearts. Don't be like those people. Repent. The author goes on, of Hebrews goes on, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But by contrast, encourage each other daily while it's still called today. Don't wait till tomorrow so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Don't let wealth or power or America or Republicans or Democrats or capitalist or socialist or Jew or Greek or black or white. Don't let anything deceive you. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. Folks, Jesus is all we have. Not Georgia, not anything else, Jesus. What we had at the start, we won't get any better than that. Cling to him. Don't harden your hearts. Don't brush away the conscience that he he sparks within you. I love that illustration Sam used today. When your heart is warmed by the, the sun and its rays, even a pebble can cause ripple effects in your soul. God's lightly tapping you can have dramatic effects. But if you are so hidden away in cloud and shadow that you become, you have ice that's three feet deep, you could drive a Mack truck over your conscience and not feel a thing. Folks, don't do it. Let your heart be warm towards God. Let your heart be warm towards one another, and enter into the rest of our Lord and Savior let's pray. Lord, help us to hear your word and not to harden our hearts. Help us to be true followers of Jesus who deny ourselves but love you and love our neighbors. Make us rich towards God since Christ became poor so that we might be rich in him. And make us to do good to live just to live just lives and to delight in your word, for it's in Jesus' name that we ask and pray all these things. Amen.